We are starting a new sermon series this week, and you may, like my wife when she said, you're starting a new sermon series on the 4th of July weekend? And I said, shut up. <laughs> no, it's just I don't know how to plan. So Galatians ended last week, and this is what we're starting this week. But we're going to look, and there are more, I expected six people here, so I'm excited to see more than six. Lula Lake keeps being rather full. I think it's the air-conditioned quarters there. But we're going to be looking for the next several weeks at this whole idea that David kicks off in this prayer where he asks God to give him an undivided heart. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. It's always been a riveting concept to me. Taking this idea that we're ADHD-hearted. We want many different things at once. We feel conflicted in a million ways. We're trying to please all sorts of people, and so we find ourselves exhausted or uncertain. We find ourselves walking as if we're being judged by a lot of different eyes. So to get the praise of one, we might warrant the condemnation of another, and it's, it's tiresome. Plus, you have to deal with your own inner critics, these chastising voices of condemnation inside. And so David gives us a way forward here, and we're going to be talking about it for the next several weeks, this idea of asking God to give us an undivided heart and what we might do to get it, why we might need it, what are some of the symptoms of it. And so we'll be talking around that as we go. And to to start today, in unusual fashion, in fact, you might want to document this for posterity, it's pretty fitting. In the start of my 16th year here of pastoral ministry, that I would have my first sermon that would have four points that are all alliterative. I won't remember what they are probably, but we have a problem, we have a principle, we have a practice, and we have a person. That is four Ps, people. Ps. You know that I never do it this way, and I'll probably never will again. It came to me, so there. Here's the problem. The apostle, I mean, the King David, as a prayer, as a man without a small bank account, he comes and says he's poor and needy. He recognizes that there are deficits within him that he can't do anything about. He's constantly dealing with himself and with enemies. He's standing in the stead of God as king over his people, as a representative of God. And so he asks for an undivided heart because he recognizes his problem is that he has a divided one. When I was a junior in high school, it was the early part of November, and I drove my sexy 1978 Volkswagen Rabbit onto campus, a car that the boys could pick up and move if they wanted. And I parked. It was the first day of basketball season. I remember we were about to play Brainerd that night. I was excited. I got out of my car, and I I opened the door. I didn't do it like the Dukes of Hazzard. And um, I got out of my car, and you may remember there used to be in car doors, they had these little triangle windows. You had the big rectangular window and the little triangle window. And as I was getting my book bag out, I heard a friend who we called Irby 
from Sand Mountain. It's part of the North Georgia Connection, as we called them. These guys that I played ball with. And he said, hey, E! That's, I was called Big E. I don't know why. Hey, E! And I looked, and he, he shot my window with a BB gun. It was just a BB gun. I mean, you know, he was just shooting people that day with a BB gun for fun. There was no malice, just stupidity. He hit my little triangle window on my $750 car. The window promptly went, and it spiderwebbed. But it held intact. I, as in most cases, knowing precisely what to do, looked at it in contempt, shook my head, and just walked off. I just walked to class. What are, what are you going to do? Somebody just shot out my window. How are we, we going to work this out before classes? I was late. So I got there, and I decided I was going to have to make do with this fragmented window. For a while, I thought, maybe it'll just hold, and I was going over the little jotty bridge one day, and the thing started to cave in. So I decided I'd have to bust out the, all of it, with a thousand little pieces falling into the floor. But being a handy person, in, in really remarkable ways, I had once, in another car that I had when the rearview mirror fell off on the day of prom, when I was picking up Kathy, I just duct taped it back and it lasted for several years that way. And this window, I thought, well, I've got the perfect fix for this. Trash bag. I want to look good. I want to be stylish. I put a trash bag over the window, and I just taped it up there, and it was, it was perfect for, you know, trash bags do a great job of insulating you, keeping you from the cold. It did marginally keep the water out, and it had the advantage of being very stylistic. If I had been on Instagram in those days, or in any days, I could have taken many pictures of it and would have won the favor of many. I had a broken window. I had a fragmented situation, and I tried to take it into my own hands, and the best I could come up with was a trash bag. There is a problem that is implicit in what David says here when he says, give me an undivided heart, is he recognizes that there are parts of him that are not fully loyal to the God that he wants to be fully loyal to. There are parts of him that say, God, I want you so bad, and there are other parts that as he says it, has his fingers crossed behind his back. There are parts of him, like parts of us, that that want to follow Jesus and at the very same time are terrified of what that might mean. Or we forget about him and we we want what we want. And so we are split and we're conflicted inside and we don't know what we're supposed to do and we get worn down. And one of the Bible's answers to these problems is you need a remedy for your divided God promises to the Israelites in Ezekiel that he's going to purge them from all their acclaiming and heralding other gods. He's going to purge them from that and give them an undivided heart. He's going to put his spirit in them, move them. He says the same thing in Ezekiel 36. So we have this problem that we're 
We're divided. We're in deficit. There are parts of us that can't repair. Our lives are fragmented in some ways. We feel like we're being pulled, as Chuck DeGroat wrote in a new book called Wholeheartedness, in a thousand different directions. That's the problem. There's a principle. Hey, see, I'm keeping track here. Problem, principle. There's a principle, though, from this text that Christianity teaches, and it's this. Get poor quick scheme. Christianity presents to us a get poor quick scheme or a get rich slow scheme. I was watching The Office recently and Michael was trying to convince the people in the office that this this pyramid scheme that he was working on was not a pyramid scheme and he was trying to tell them how they were going to be able to get so rich and someone said, Michael, that's just a get rich quick scheme and he says, thank you! Right! I'm telling you how to get rich quick. The Bible's principle is this. If you want to have a rich inner life with God, it's going to happen slowly. And it's going to accumulate. And your trust is going to build. And he's going to resource you daily like manna from heaven. But you can't really bank it. But you have to learn to get poor quickly. And so David, who's obviously not monetarily poor, is king of Israel, prays, Hear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am devoted to you. You're my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for to you I call all day long. Bring joy to your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. He's getting poor quickly. There is a temptation that exists for all of us when we feel this sense of lack, this sense of deficit. Think about something in your job where you think, I probably ought to be doing this certain duty. Or you get to the end of the day and you're hoping that no one scrutinizes your work because you feel like maybe you're not doing any of it right. And I'm assuming almost every mom in here feels that, and dad. There are lots of ways you feel like if someone finds out what I'm doing or not doing, they're going to be very disgusted with me. And so you pretend. You pose. You posture. You peacock. You curate yourself. You try to present a self to other people that you hope they will like, you hope they will accept, you hope that they will welcome. And Christians, one of the things that we realize is this principle of getting poor quickly, that we have this freedom and this license to say, look, I've already admitted the way I got into this relationship was, was taking Jesus seriously when he said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. I've already recognized that I'm a defaced and vandalized image of God, and I need someone else to put me back together. And so when I come before God, which I'm going to do, I'm going to ask him, won't you do something with me? I'm going to lift up my soul to him. Bring joy to your servant, O Lord, for to you I lift up my soul. Because, see, that's the thing. When you are in a get-poor-quick scheme, you know that daily momentary joy is going to come from lifting your soul up to God. 
And what you don't realize, or what I don't realize most of the time, is that all day long you walk around trying to avoid feeling the things that would make you feel poor and needy. Alan Jacobs recently wrote an article that some of you have seen, Habits of the Distracted Mind, I think he called it, and he lists out in it a very marvelous prayer from the Book of Common Prayer about a person of troubled conscience, a person who can't get out of the labyrinth of themselves. They're so eaten up with their own neurosis, which is a kind of conflict in this. They're, they're troubled, they're bruised, they're mangled inside. And it's a beautiful prayer and guidance for how to tend pastorally to somebody in this condition. But he makes this very compelling point. We are perhaps entering into a moment in human history where people aren't going to feel any of these things because they're never alone enough or quiet enough to actually feel them. And you can think about that, what it's like. You know how at night you're sitting at your house and you think, You know what I really need? I need some solitude and silence. So the kids are in bed, so I'm just going to sit here in this chair and be reflective. Yeah, maybe you'll do that with a bottle of scotch. But you're not going to sit there by yourself with yourself. Most of you aren't. That would be terrifying. How could you endure yourself for a minute without some kind of distraction? So you get on something. You click, go to next episode. Or you don't even click it, right? You can just have it happen. You just set up Netflix to happen to you. Or nobody's ever had the situation when they were on Facebook or they were aimlessly hyper-clicking away and they looked up and realized, oh, it's Monday morning. I started this on Friday. I've just been stuck here, lost in the cyber world for three straight days or playing video games. A great trick of the devil, a great conspiracy around you is that you never have to feel anything that makes you feel deficited. You can constantly run from yourself to some kind of banal distraction. And in that sense, what you're doing in that moment is saying, to you, O Facebook, I lift up my soul. Bring joy to your servant, O Instagram, for to you I lift up my soul. Bring joy to me, Santitos, for to you I lift up my soul. Bring joy to me, Netflix, for to you I lift up my soul. I don't think any of those things are wrong in and of themselves, especially not the Santitos. But if you're running away from yourself, if you're running away from your pain or your deficit, from the things that might get you in the fragmented state before God that you could say, I got to get poor quick. I got to own up to my poverty and stop pretending around everybody all the time. I've got to own up to it and lift up my soul to him. That's a problem that we have fragmentation, divided heart. We have this principle, though, of getting poor quick, of making sure that we're not running from the things that would make us feel our inner deficits or poverty. And then there's this third P, practice. Practice. 
You notice this whole text is a psalm. It's a prayer. Prayer is a practice. David says, have mercy on me, for I call to you all day long. That's what I do. What do you do? I call to God. All the time. He's made it a practice. I have noticed, as many of you, that there are different kinds of practices, and all of them form us in some way or another. This summer, I think we've, by my last tally, spent $675,000 at Chick-fil-A. I may, I may be off a dollar or two. Nobody has incurred such debt at Chick-fil-A as we have. Just kidding about the debt. And the $675,000, do not be that alarmed. But we've been to a lot of baseball games. And so we eat at this place. But I can tell you this. An astonishing thing happens sometimes. Have you ever just been overwhelmed with the earnest desire to hug a teenager who's giving you a chicken sandwich? Just be like, thank you. And it's not for the chicken sandwich, even though those are good and the waffle fries are better and the cookies and cream milkshakes are fine. But it's not that. It's that in a world where there are so many demands and people are so cantankerous and they're so doggone snarky, that when you say, okay, thanks, they say, my pleasure, my pleasure. They cheerlead you, and you just want to stop and say, do you want to come over to our house and just say my pleasure while we eat and just be sweet around people? Little Jimmy, Laurel, whatever, I don't know what their names are, but they always say my pleasure. You know why? Because someone made them. But does that mean it's not real? I don't know. Cynic, stop. It, they said it. Believe it. It's their pleasure. But see, you know what's happened to us? Someone decided as an act of customer service, here's what you say. We're going to decide in advance what you say. When they say thank you, you say my pleasure. Okay? Now, some of you can say, well, I'm not going to say my pleasure if I don't mean my pleasure. I can't say it authentically. And Truett Kathy would say, shut up. If you want to work here, say it. Say my pleasure. Because you know what he knows and what wise people know? There are all kinds of practices that form who you are. So you make decisions ahead of time. You make decisions against your, your vacillating self. Because it may not always be your pleasure. But if you decided that you were going to say my pleasure... You would just always say that, and you might actually start to be pleasurable. By contrast, I have a good friend here in the front who, while we were in seminary, you may have heard this story before. We, he, he went to the, you know, the greatest grocery store on earth called the Publix, and he was getting one of them famous subs, that, one of those good subs they have at Publix. I know it's getting near lunchtime, and you're thankful for me to mention food. But I don't know exactly how it went down, but it was something like this. My friend Scott here had, had made one too many requests for extra pickles or mustard or some lettuce. Because at some point, after he made a request of this gentleman who was making his sandwich, instead of saying, my pleasure, this man looked up to the heavens and said, God, give me strength. And Scott said, hey, you want to come over? 
God, give me strength. He needed an endowment from the heavens to contend with this onerous process of making a sandwich. Because he hadn't decided ahead of time what he was going to do. So he just did what occurred to him. And let me tell you, it was not right. That is not the customer service face they meant to project. One of the reasons that we do pray for me, one of the reasons that we're doing a Bible reading plan, one of the reasons that we gather for worship while we urge you to prayer, while we urge you to gather together in groups, is because we think you need practices that will form you. And you need to decide ahead of time to make place, to make space, to have attention gathering and giving times because nobody around you wants you to think about God. And so you're deciding, I need to do that. I need to make space in my life so that I'm giving attention to God. You know, Dallas Willard would say, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Effort is an activity. Earning is an attitude. And people who know they're poor and needy and who know how to get poor quick They want to make time for prayer. They want to make time for the scriptures because they know that's where they go to get faith. What? That's where they go to get faith. It's not where they have faith and then they go. They go there to learn how to trust God. They go there to learn that God is real. They go there to learn that he can do something about their poverty. So we have to have these practices. And David says, I call to you all day long. He's learned not to talk about God, but to talk to God. Have mercy on me. Turn to me. Give me a sign of your goodness. Teach me your way. Give me an undivided heart. You're forgiving and good. In the day of my trouble, I will call to you. I'm going to call to you all the time. When I'm in trouble, I'll call to you. And any other time, I'll call to you. These practices of attention giving are part of what brings us Back together. You may have noticed that sometimes people, at the end of the day, they like to talk about their day. How was your day? Fine, how was your day? But they like to rehearse their day sometimes. They like to work through the contours of their day sometimes. And I've sometimes not been incredibly patient with this process because sometimes I think, well, I just lived this day and I don't want to relive it by words. But I fail to realize something rather important. It's why we, with our dearest friends, we process things. That therapeutic word that's made its way into the vernacular. We talk through things with people who will listen to us. Because as Beekner said in Godric, he says that his sister loved to listen to her brother chatter because it brought back to her the bits and pieces of herself that had been scattered throughout the day. And this idea that we go out into a world where people are not saying my pleasure. They're saying, God, give me strength. We go out into an exasperating world and and we lose bits and pieces of ourselves. We get fragmented. We forget who we are. We, We are conflicted inside. And we need somebody to hear us. We need somebody to listen to us, to gather the pieces of ourselves back together that have been disassembled. And one of the huge ways that that happens is in prayer. 
if you don't believe in God very much, you need to start praying a lot. Because that's how belief will get formed in you. Start talking to the God you don't much believe in. And if you believe in them just a little bit, why don't you pray a lot? Because then you'll start to believe in them even more. Because you'll realize he's listening. It's in fact his listening that's sucking prayer out of you like a vacuum. It's his listening that helps you know that you're loved. And knowing that you're loved will make you trust that he'll listen. And it'll keep this revolving circle of practice. Giving yourself to the scriptures. Giving yourself to prayer to these spaces where you can attend. So you can understand what are my problems of poverty, of soul. What's this principle? How do I get poor quick before God? How do I practice taking my poverty and lifting up my soul to him? And the last P is person. That car of mine with the broken down window. One day, after many months or a couple of months or weeks, I don't know how much time had elapsed of having this trash bag. I probably replaced the trash bag a time or two because, you know, I keep up my maintenance projects. But I came home one day. I must have been with my parents. My car was sitting in the driveway, and the window was repaired. It was just fixed. There was a new window there. There had been no advertisement that this was going to, well, a long time ago they said they would fix it, but they never did, and I just gave up. And the window was fixed. Someone had come, and they had used their expertise to put a whole unfractured window back together that could insulate me, that could hold me in this magnificent ride, that could let me be able to see out, that could function as it was meant to. But I wasn't able to do it myself. I needed another to unfragment the window, to put it together whole. And that's what the psalmist recognizes, that he's talking to a God who is forgiving and good and in our deficits has no scarcity problem whatsoever. That in his hands are the healing for which we hope, are the the holding together, the reassembling of us, which we desperately need. One of the things that Stephen Covey has said is that when it comes to time management, for instance, and I'm not talking about time management, but you can get this for free, that if you... Just do everything that has to be done, and whatever comes at you, you'll likely not do the most important things in your life. He has a book called First Things First, and one of his principles is the principle of the boulder. And the principle of the boulder is you need to look at your calendar, and you need to say, what are the priorities in my life? What are the things that are most important? And you need to put those boulders there. Boom. When you're doing your scheduling, boom, boom. And then fill in everything else around those boulders. Those boulders won't fit once everything else is in there. But once the boulders are there, everything else can fit around them. It's the principle of first things first. C.S. Lewis has said, have you ever noticed how often it is that when you're talking to God, someone else will come to mind? A person will be put on your heart? But how rarely it happens when you're talking to another person that God has put on your heart. Jesus knows 
as Banner read, that what is indigenous to us is to worry about who's going to give us joy and who's going to give us protection. And so we worry about what we're going to eat and what we're going to wear and how we're going to look and how we're going to come through. And he says, people without a person with a capital P have to worry about that stuff. They have to let their shoulders get buckled. They're called pagans. They have no God in the world, so they should have slumped shoulders. But you don't have to run after any of that stuff. You can run after the God who will make you whole. Seek first Christ. Seek his value. Seek his righteousness. Seek his ability to put you back together. To reassemble you when you're divided. To reassure you when you're stuck. On my iPrecious, I have thousands of reminders that come up to me and berate me constantly. It's just kind of a self-flagellation of, here's what you haven't done yet. You know how to-do lists work that way? You never look at all that you've got done. You just look at all you have not yet gotten done. And I have these reminders that constantly tell me, here's what you didn't do, here's what you didn't do yet, here's what you didn't do yet. But I decided to do some judo on Siri. And I've made some reminders that have scripture verses so that throughout the day, I can remind myself that the earth is the Lord's, that his incomparably great power is available to us who believe. And I have one that comes on late at night when I'm tempted to despair. It just comes up and says, trust God's favor. And I like that. Because when you have deep problems, they're deficited. And you recognize this principle that I got to get poor quick in front of God so that I can live a rich life. And you have this practice of, of going to this God regularly and saying, I'm going to make space because I can't do my life without running on the one I was meant to run off of. Then this person in his favor, this person, Jesus Christ, who has given all so that we might be his, is worthy of our trust. And we can keep saying, will you reassemble me? The bits and pieces that have scattered, will you give me what I cannot create for myself, namely, an undivided heart. I hope you will join me as we give ourselves in these problems that we have, this principle that we've looked at, to this practice of praying to this person, Jesus Christ, who can put us back together. Let's pray. And if you will, turn your bulletins to...